Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to read the last verses of that chapter. Very famous little story that runs from verse 38, the story of um, Jesus going to dinner with two sisters, Martha and Mary. It's on page 1528. I've been very conscious that um, quite a few of you have felt a little bit under the cosh lately, and... Um, struggling with whatever's going on in life, and life throws lots of things at you. So I felt this would be really helpful to some people. Let's read the story. Luke chapter 10, from verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. At one level... This little story could be seen just as the, um, as the kind of natural experience of siblings and just a sort of almost stereotypical portrayal of... I would almost put money on Martha being the older sibling, wouldn't you? The responsible one, the one who knows um, what's what and knows what needs to get done. And Mary is undoubtedly the dreamy younger sibling who doesn't know the meaning of the word responsibility. Joshua's not here today, so I'm going to say whatever I like, but that's, that's not really what um, the point of the story is, is it? Um, the story is far more, in many ways, a kind of portrayal of two different approaches to, to life, to your faith, um, to your relationship with Jesus, uh, most especially. And I trust that just this little incident is going to help just lift the lid on certain things going on in your life, in your heart, um, and help you to, to make some course corrections today um, that will just enable you to, to set your priorities straight. But I want us to begin by just thinking about Martha. Because there are three words in this story that are used to describe her, and um, they really capture so much that you will identify with. The first is in verse 40. Martha was distracted it says she was distracted with much serving and the reality is that we only have a certain amount of attention to give Um, the great myth is that you can multitask Eugene's attempting to do it right now by listening and typing on his phone maybe you're typing notes I don't know oh good man there you go This is a danger of being in such a small room, though. I can see everything. You know, I know what you guys are up to all the way through. Um, we only have a certain amount of attention to give. And one of the great myths of the modern age was this myth of multitasking, the idea that you could do two things at once. And that's true as long as they're different parts of your brain. Like, you can sort of uh, drive and talk to someone at the same time, although it's a bit risky. You can certainly walk and talk to someone at the same time. It'd be odd, wouldn't it, if you're having a conversation... And every time you had to answer, you had to stop, and, and, and then you could carry on concentrating on your walking. Your brain is able to function on different tasks, but when they overlap using the same parts of the mind, that's not the case. 
And so you can't, um, you can't listen to a conversation and read a book at the same time. Um, it's, not, it's not physically possible. And so when, when Luke's using this word to describe Martha, he's speaking of, of her attention being drawn away from what's important, really, I suppose, because for her to be distracted means that there's something important which she ought to be giving her attention to, which she isn't. Her mind is flitting about all over the place. And you know um, that you experience a thousand distractions every day, don't you? I certainly do. Um, we seem to have more opportunities for distraction now than ever before, not least because of that thing, the internet and that device that's in your pocket and all those sources of entertainment and all the busyness of life. We have a thousand diversions all the time from what's important, don't we? So she was distracted and Luke is wanting us to understand that her mind wasn't attentive to what's important. But also, he's talking about the quality of her thoughts. That it says something about her mind being unfocused, about flitting about. That she's unable to experience that calm, that rest of concentrating on, on one thing, of being conscious of the presence of Jesus in the right way. And ironically... The very thing that's distracting her is a good thing. It's the fact that he says that she is serving Jesus. She is distracted with serving. That's obviously a comment, isn't it? It's a comment on her priorities. It speaks into the issue that I think we need to be thinking about today, which is when, when your work becomes the problem. When the things that you're doing, which can be important things in and of themselves, become the problem in your walk with the Lord. She was distracted. Secondly, she was anxious. It says a little bit further down that when Jesus addresses her, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You're anxious. So she's distracted, but she's also anxious. It speaks about a concern or worry. Sometimes the word is used positively in terms of a positive concern for other people. But here it's used in the negative sense, isn't it? She's anxious. Why? Because various things are conspiring to steal um, her attention. And her anxiety reveals a, a number of things that are going on in her heart. First of all, that, that, th- that she thinks Jesus is hard to please. I'm also distracted for some reason right now. It's, yeah. So, he's my boy, so anyway. She's distracted, she's anxious. She's anxious, which reveals that a few things about what's going on in her heart. Firstly, that she thinks Jesus is hard to please. She wouldn't be anxious if Jesus was her brother coming for dinner, probably. She wouldn't be anxious if she was feeding the family. She's anxious because she thinks that this guest might not be pleased with her actions, with what she's doing. Isn't that the source of so much anxiety that we are people-pleasers? But that can also be the source of anxiety in your walk with Jesus, that maybe you think he's hard to please and that you need to try harder. She's anxious and it reveals this, that also her, her identity is somehow built upon, upon her doing a good job, upon her serving him well, upon her putting on a good spread, that somehow that, that would 
contribute to her sense of self-worth, her sense of self-justification before Jesus, that, that she would be a little bit more important, a little bit more admired if, if she does a good job in serving him. And she's anxious also because of the expectations. We have hundreds and thousands of unspoken, unwritten expectations that are placed on us because of culture and because of the environments in which we grow up. And they vary from place to place, time to time, but certainly in the context in which Martha lived, hospitality was so vital, so important. You had to give your guest um, a wonderful dinner, a wonderful spread, even if you couldn't afford to. It's part of the culture. It's built into the way of thinking. And so all these things begin to, to cloud her mind and to make her anxious. She's anxious, she's worried, she's concerned. So she's distracted and she's anxious. And Jesus says something else about her. He says she's troubled. She says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. It just means that she isn't happy. There's somehow... Amongst all the whirring of what's going on in her mind and all the busyness of that day and all the anxiety that's weighing upon her, she's not happy. And then a couple of other issues are contributing to that. One is the resentment that she's suddenly feeling towards her sister, her slack-off sister, who's kind of sat around, lounging about at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't seem to be too concerned about this. And so she's resentful towards her, And she's feeling left out, and she's feeling stressed out. And then also, she's troubled because of her sense of self-pity. You see it, don't you, in the way she talks to Jesus. She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Don't you care, Lord? She feels this sort of sense of self-pity, like he ought to... He ought to see what's going on and and tell Mary to get up and help her sister and sort out the dinner with her and all that. And so all of this begins to to contribute to a sense of being just a bit miserable. She's pulling her hair out. She's feeling stressed. She's at the end of her tether. I suspect that for a lot of us, that's exactly where you feel maybe today, in your life generally at the moment, or certainly from time to time you go through seasons where this is true of you, you could say that occasionally you're Martha. And um, the question then, well, what are we, how are we to respond to this? I think she's a representative for anyone who feels too busy to sit at the feet of Jesus. You know that we are called to do that, Right? that a disciple is, is, is a person who sits at the feet of their master to know, them, to know their mind, to understand their priorities, to know what they care about and what they hate, to know how they want you to live in response. And that that takes a devotion and an attention and a time. And you are called to be disciples. If you're called to be a Christ follower, you're called to sit at his feet. But how often... Do you feel that you're too busy to do that? Thomas Brooks was a writer who wrote in the 1600s, and he, um, he wrote a book about prayer, which is just like every paragraph is like a little punch in the gut. And uh, he has a little section where he, he just begins to answer this question, are you too busy for prayer? Are you too busy to spend time with the Lord 
in this way, like Mary is doing. And uh, it's, it's just comforting to know that in the 1600s, they had the same issues. That our, our problems aren't unique to the 21st century, are they? People in the 1600s were making these excuses as well. People don't change. The human heart doesn't change. We just have slightly different diversions and different distractions. So Brooks gives these eight sort of considerations for you to think about. If, if you've ever said, I'm, I'm too busy, let me just give them to you. First of all, he asks you this. Are you busier than the men of God in the Bible who carried great responsibility? Guys like Moses, we can read about his prayer life and we understand a little bit about the time he spent with God. But don't you realize he was also leading over a million people as the head of state effectively under God? David, similarly, he left us, <laughs> he left us um, an insight into his devotion in the book of Psalms. So many of them were written by him. But he was also the king of a nation. I, Brooks just making a simple point. None of us are quite as busy as David was. If you really think about it, maybe new mums. Maybe they could have, give that excuse. Daniel, wonderful example. He, he essentially ran an empire, the biggest empire in the world at the time. Uh, he was third in command, but the, the guys above him were the king and his son, and effectively they're, they're figureheads, and Daniel has to do everything they want. So he's running the empire, and there's Daniel. We're told about his prayer life in the book of Daniel that he prayed three times a day. It got him into trouble, if you know the story. It was, it was outlawed. You can't pray to anyone but to the emperor, and uh, Daniel, of course, he does. Daniel, Jesus himself. I don't think you can quite understand busyness until you understand what it means to, to spend your life in taking upon you the care of souls and, the care, and people who are crowding around him. Now, most pastors and leaders don't experience this to the degree Jesus did because no one really wants the attention of a pastor to the extent that they wanted Jesus' attention. I mean, this guy could raise the dead. He could fix your problems on the spot. And so he found himself surrounded by people all the time, sucking his attention, his energy, his, his care. And uh, it says from time to time he had to find a desolate place. So Brooks just asked you this question, are you busier than them? Do you know, thinking about David and the kings, do you know that in the Old Testament there was an instruction given to the kings that they ought to, let me just read it to you, it, it was this, that a king shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. In other words, the first five books of Moses, uh, Genesis to, to uh, Deuteronomy, hundreds of pages and they were meant to manually, letter by letter, copy it out, word for word, for themselves, to make a copy. Why themselves? Why do they have to do it themselves? Because David or any of the kings could have just got a lackey to do it. I think the answer is that you value what you, you give your time to, don't you? So the kings were told that they had to make a copy, and it had to be approved then by the Levitical priests. I assume they went through it letter by letter, as they do to this day, the scribes, checking it's all correct. And it says it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? Because a king would not be a useful king 
unless he first of all is a devoted king. Brooks asks you the question, are you busier than these men of God in the Bible who carried big responsibility? He writes, these brave hearts made all their public employments, their jobs, stoop to private prayer. They would never suffer their public employments to tread private prayer underfoot. They never let their work stomp on their devotion to God. They, They always made sure their work bowed in their devotion to God. Second thing, he asks this. He he makes this point, that prayer to Jesus can allow your work to prosper. Now I know that many people prosper without praying. But there's prospering and there's prospering. There's success and there's success. There's something which can be done for the flesh and that's badly motivated and that will ultimately fritter away. And then there's what you do for the Lord, which he blesses and which is for eternity. Thirdly, I ask you this, are you sure that you're not wasting time that could be given to the Lord? Just consider the things that pull you away from him. It may be your job, it may be other stuff going on in your life. Brooks uh, mentions what was going on in the lives of his contemporaries. He said that they spend their time in gazing about, I'm not sure... Think about this. They didn't have TV back in the 1600s. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have any of that stuff. So if you were wanting to waste time, you just sit and gaze about. Just sort of look into the distance and your eyes just glaze over. They were gazing about or in dallying, whatever that means, or in toying or courting. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, flirting. You know, that can take a lot of time and attention, can't it? <laughs> uh, in telling of stories, sorry, <laughs> in telling of stories, uh, when, you, you know, when you didn't have your box sets to put on, what do you do? You go down to the pub and you tell each other funny stories or in busying themselves in other men's matters or in idle visits or in smoking of a pipe. What would you add to this? I think a lot of people say they're busy, but really, really, when you think about it, There's always the cracks in the day that you fill up with all kinds of random junk, isn't there? Fourth, he asks this, is your excuse going to hold up before the face of Jesus? He says, oh sirs, as you love your souls and as you would be happy forever, in other words, if you want eternal happiness, he says, never put off your own consciences nor others, with any pleas, arguments, or objections now that you dare not own and stand by when you shall lie upon a dying bed and when you shall appear before the whole court of heaven. He says this. Never use an excuse which you wouldn't use when you're about to die, which you wouldn't use when you're face to face with Christ. You alone know what the excuses are that we, we, you use, which is in your own life, in your own heart. And Brooks just wants to provoke you. Would you, would you use that same excuse uh, if you were stood before Jesus at this moment, in all this splendor, in all this glory? He invites you to come and know him. He says, I am the good portion. I am the treasure your heart seeks. Why, why are you not 
coming after me. Fifth, he makes the point that we're called to redeem time from our work to give to Jesus, from our busyness, from all our daily employments. We're called to redeem it, which means this. It's to buy it back. The word is is, is referring to a place where, where Paul says in Ephesians 5, redeem the time because the days are evil. In other words, have an attentiveness to how you're using your time. And the word redeem there means to buy it, to buy it, to purchase it, to gain it. It was used about guys who went down to the market, merchants who get down to the market, and they would need to buy certain goods to then take with them to go and sell in order to make a living. And if the goods run out, if you go to the meat markets in London early in the morning, certain portions of meat are going to run out quickly. The fillet steaks, if you're in a steak restaurant, you better buy it quickly to make sure you get the best steak before it all sells out. It's like sniping on eBay. You know when you've got 30 seconds to go and you just wait for the last 10 seconds and then you go for 11p more than the other person just to make sure you get that purchase. He's saying, buy the time. Seize the moment. Buy it back. Redeem the time. You may feel that you've wasted so much time, so many years, you're alive now. You're breathing now. Buy back what's left. Redeem the time. In the Psalms, we learn a little bit about David and the various psalmists and how they sought to do it. And one of the ways that they sought to buy the time back, given that we all have an equal number of hours, was by denying themselves a little bit of sleep. Psalm 63 says... Uh, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Actually, I don't really recommend trying to meditate on the things of God when you're lying in your bed, because most of us just conk out, don't we? But he's saying, when everyone else is asleep, I fill my mind and my mouth up with the things of God. I start muttering scripture to myself and praying to the Lord. You can read a number of passages in the Psalms that indicate that kind of attempt to just gain more time amidst the busyness of life. Psalm 130 says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Just as a watchman's job was to stand on the edge of the city and He'd gaze and wait for the sun to come up because presumably then the shift has ended. He says, with that degree of excitement and anticipation, I get up early and I seek you. I seek your face. Number six, decide. Either your call to pray, to be before the Lord, to be with Him, to know Him, either your call to do that is a calling or it's and a duty or it isn't. I think so often we, um, we fail in our, our lack of devotion to the Lord simply for failure to make a decision. To really settle in our hearts whether this is what I'm called to do or not. Jesus told parables trying to shed a light on the kinds of, you know, sort of fence-sitting that we do in terms of our discipleship. And one of them is in Luke 14. He tells a parable about a man... He's, he's making a great banquet. He says, he says I've, I've put some pork belly in the fryer. 
waiting for a meal. And he sends his servants out to go and invite all these esteemed guests to come for dinner. And uh, they start replying with their excuses. It's like, well, they see you know, the invitation pop up on Facebook and they're a little bit like, well, maybe something better will come along. And, and they start just replying with all these excuses. And they say things like this. They say, um, I bought a field and I need to go out and see it. Please have me excused, as though the field won't be there tomorrow. They say, I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Again, the oxen, you know, they're not going anywhere. They're in your barn. That's, you could go to dinner. And it, another says, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. But we know why he can't come because he's just got married. And uh, a little bit eager. And uh, Brooks, Brooks, he writes this, the true reason why they would not come to the supper that the king of kings had invited them to was not because they bought farms and oxen, but because their farms and oxen had bought them. That in other words, that we give our time to the things that we value, the things that we most care about, that we count as most precious to us. And he's urging us to consider this is a matter of obedience. Jesus is calling you. The King of Kings is summoning you to come and sit at his feet and to be his disciple. Have you made a decision about whether you are really going to follow him or not? And the quality and the nature of how you're going to follow him. Decide. It's either a duty or it isn't. Number seven God hasn't designed your calling. In other words, your work, your occupation, whether it's looking after kids, whether it's going out to work in, in a, a top firm in the, in, in the city, whether, whatever it is, whether it's studying, he hasn't designed your calling to pull you away from Jesus. So we have to walk this line where we say, in the Bible we know that your job is a calling from the Lord. It says in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments that six days shall a man work and labor, and then the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. So God actually gave the majority of your time for productive work, and that was his will and his desire. He didn't want everyone just to, to, to work a one-day week and then just sort of lounge around praying the rest of the time. That God somehow wanted us to embody kingdom activity by being given to work. And, and, the, and when you read you know, the New Testament, you realize that this is really taken very seriously. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, he says, if a man won't work, then he shan't eat. Because certain guys in the church were saying, look, I just want to be really spiritual. I just want to pray. And, you know, I, I just, you guys should probably, you know, give me some food because I'm, I'm just so on another level spiritually. And Paul says, no, if he's not going to work, then he won't eat. So you want to say, Okay, our jobs are really important. Our, our work is important. In fact, we're put in that place by God. Paul says to slaves and to freemen, stay in the position in which you're called. In other words, you've got to have a big, big view of the view of God that he's, he's given you this calling. He's, he's made, put you in this job. He's given you these gifts. So do it with all your energy. But, and here's the great but. God wouldn't have designed your general, your, your sort of... Um, no, sorry, your particular calling, the job that he's given you, the gifts, to conflict or override with the bigger calling, the general calling that he lays on all his people to be disciples of Jesus. And if there's a conflict, then something's gone wrong somewhere. 
God, Brooks writes, who is the Lord of time, has reserved some part of our time to himself every day. Number eight, he says, the busier you are, the more you need to pray. Because the more you work, the tighter you get, the more entitled you feel to certain treats and rewards, the more that you begin to lack self-control and feel exhausted. He said, the, the reality is that the harder you're working, the more you, you fall into certain sins, snares, temptations. And the need to pray doesn't diminish. It begins to intensify, doesn't it? I think the same is true at the other end of the spectrum when you're not working at all. Because suddenly your time is feeling fruitless and, and unproductive. And at both ends, you find yourself falling into into crevices, into certain temptations, certain provocations, and the need to pray is, is really intense. So Brooks, he, he makes this comment, he says, wet is no let, wet, W-H-E-T. It means no sen- makes no sense to any of us. So I assume it was a, a saying at the time, and the footnote in the book said that it, was, um, it meant that time is well spent sharpening a tool, wetting your blade, and it, re- it reminded me of um, this verse in Ecclesiastes, if I can find Ecclesiastes, somewhere in the middle of the Bible. Um, somewhere, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, there we go. Ecclesiastes 10.10. 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Now, I'm sure that this is what inspired um, Abraham Lincoln, who apparently said... But if I've got six hours to cut down a tree, I'll spend four hours sharpening the axe. The relevance to this is that when God has given you certain tasks to accomplish with your days and with your time and with your life, he wants you to be a more effective instrument in his hand. And you'll become blunter and blunter the more that your life Phrase: The more that you give way to sin, the more that you give way to temptation, the further you are from Jesus. But Christ has called you first and foremost to be a disciple and to achieve something for his kingdom, which means that he wants you to be sharp and useful. Martin Luther, again, apparently, I don't know if these quotes are real or not, but he said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. The guy was insane, but... Now, he wasn't really insane, technically insane, but I'm just saying it's a comment. He's extreme. What are we to do, friends, given um, these various challenges? Well, I want us to come back to these, this story. I want us to come back to the story here of Martha and Mary and really pay attention to what Jesus says to Martha. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. You are anxious and troubled. And then he begins to turn her attention. And I think he shows her three things. The first is he shows her that you, you need a new focus. He says, verse 42, but one thing is necessary. There's a lot of talk these days um, about the issue of focus and about your mind because I think a lot of people are feeling this 
this pull of a million distractions, of the, your phone binging a hundred times, thousand times a day, however sociable you are, sociable. And um, a lot of people are, are, are feeling with all the bombardment that we need to somehow gain center ourselves and get some calm. And so there's this, this thing, this trend for what they call mindfulness, which are basically is, is Buddhism repackaged for the Western world. Um, if you just sort of gain some time every day to become mindful, to be calm, and to think about nothing, maybe just think about your breathing, then it's supposed to have a massive effect then on, on, on enabling you to walk into the day and, and have, be effective. But some cynics, I think, have rightly pointed out that you know, a lot of companies sponsor like these gurus to come in and teach their employees about mindfulness. And they, they're saying, look, these, these employees are not selflessly looking out for their... Empl- uh, the employers are not selflessly looking out for their employees. They're just trying to get more productivity out of them. So all they're doing is using a, t- a new technique to make the monkeys work harder. And, and, and in reality, it's not in any way shifting people's focus to what is positive and desirable. It's just making them work harder, uh, producing more. So Jesus isn't just talking here about living a vaguely more focused life. Because, and sure enough, living with some focus and purpose and flow is a helpful thing. It can make you feel more fulfilled. It can make you feel more happy. But it's not just being focused on something that's the important thing. It's being focused on Jesus. That's the important thing. When he says one thing is necessary... He wasn't calling her just to a more sort of serene, zen-like approach to cooking the meal. He was calling her to, to come and sit at his feet, wasn't he? One thing is necessary. He says, your mind is, is in a thousand directions right now, and you need to come and focus on me. That's a theme that you find in the Bible in many places. Psalm 27 One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And gaze upon the beauty. Paul said it similarly in Philippians 3, when he said, he talks about laying aside all the rubbish, and he just said, one thing I pursue. And he talks about living for the prize, living for the the treasure. And Christ, you know, he says elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye is single, remember, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if if you're fixed upon me, Jesus is advocating that your entire life can become reordered when he is at the center. Priorities have that effect, don't they? The word priority means that you put it first and then everything else falls into place behind it. And you can't have multiple priorities because that's a contradiction in terms. You can't say my priority is my work and Jesus and my family. No. Your priority is Christ. And then the other things ought to fall in place behind that somehow. You need a new focus. Secondly, he tells her, Your life needs to be about pursuing joy. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. The good portion. Now, you've got to understand that both of these women were were trying to pursue joy. 
Martha was trying to pursue joy by winning approval. She reasoned, if I work hard, if I put on a great spread, and if I really impress Jesus, I'm going to get his glowing affirmation and acceptance and delight. And that is what I crave. What else could have motivated her than that? But Jesus is saying that while the pursuit is right, that yes, we are all on a joy quest. Everything you do is motivated ultimately by the pursuit of joy. That sometimes the decisions you make can be utterly misguided because joy doesn't land, doesn't, isn't there for you at the end of that road, at the end of that pursuit. If you make that your life goal, if you make that your priority, if you make that your pursuit, you won't get what he calls here the good portion. So he's not advocating to her some kind of self-denial. He's not saying to Martha, look, I want you just to deny yourself and become all kind of um, self-flagellating. He says, on the contrary, he's saying, look, there's something on offer for you here that's precious and that's free and that he calls the good portion. He said, why aren't you just taking this? He's talking, of course, about himself. And the same is true for us. Friends, You can find some temporary fulfillment and satisfaction by filling your life and your time up with whatever it is, whatever ambition you're pursuing, whatever employment that you are filling up your days with. But ultimately, it cannot fill up the need of the human heart, which is ultimately to be known and loved by Jesus and to know him. Mary has chosen the good portion. And he's promising lasting joy. Jesus wants everyone to come to him and to know joy. To know fulfillment in knowing him. Not that you then become a waste of space in your day-to-day work, but that that is rightly ordered and done for his glory because he is the focus of your life. And lastly... He tells her that your life needs to be built on and rest on the promises of God. How does he do that? He says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, here's how I understand what he's saying to her. I think he's contrasting two ways of doing religion, really. That there's the works way. And the faith way. There's the law way and the grace way. I know that those terms are shorthand, so let me just explain what I mean. That Martha represents, in so many ways, how we naturally approach life and and religion and the appetites of our hearts, that we reason that we need to work for approval. And that And we've discovered that we're never quite done enough. That it's an endless rat race. And that we begin also to then resent others and to draw comparisons with people around us. Do you ever identify with any of this? That constant striving. And a sense for approval, but never quite gaining it because you've never quite reached what you were trying to reach. People apply this in their walk with God. They think if I 
they live under a cloud as though God is displeased, as though God is inaccessible, unless, unless I am more driven, more hardworking, more devoted. But Mary, the sister, undoubtedly the younger sister, she represents the way of faith and the way of grace in the sense that she just receives Christ as a gift. She doesn't think she has to earn his approval. She's not even trying to impress him. He comes into her house and she just immediately plonks herself on the floor at his feet and just basks under his teaching. So many of you are right now. I can see you. Not really. (laughs) She's experiencing total satisfaction and rest in the presence of Jesus, isn't he? She She doesn't feel she's got to earn it. She doesn't feel she's got to impress him. And what does Jesus say? He says that of of what she's receiving, he says that she's got this good portion which will not be taken away from her. And that is so critical to understanding this dynamic. That essentially it's this, that you, you cannot lose what's given to you as a gift. If you earn God's approval, which so many people think is what's necessary, then you can just as easily lose it the minute you trip and stumble and fall. But if Christ gives you grace, if he smiles upon you as a free gift because he loves you and for no other reason than that he loves you, and if you are able to receive that that acceptance by sitting at Christ's feet like Mary does, then because it's a gift... You can't lose it by your performance. He says, it will not be taken away from her. It's lasting. It's permanent. It's free. Friends, as we close, I want to just bring you back to that psalm that we read at the very beginning of the service, Psalm 131. And I want you to turn this into your meditation. As we... As you reflect on your own life, as you reflect on your walk with Jesus, is it, is it the case that you felt a little bit more like Martha? Like you've been running around and maybe you just need to dig around in your heart and try and understand your own motives for a moment. Why are you so busy? Whose approval are you seeking? Are you really too busy to be with Jesus? Are you really too busy to drink from the fountain of life? And to make him the center. Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. In other words, he says, I've, I've given up striving. I've given up trying to understand things that I, I can't understand and even the very workings of my own heart and trying to fathom my own motives and the things that drive me. He says, I've just given up. I've given up this relentless drive for who knows what. I've given up this constant sense of feeling stressed and frazzed and worked to the brink of burnout. 
I've given up. I've calmed and quieted my soul, he says. And then he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Which I take in it to be the essence of the gospel. That as you lay down your self-justification, your striving, you replace it with hope, with faith, with confidence in the God who saved you, with the, the Savior who came for you, who died for you on the cross, and in bleeding out His blood for you, made a way possible for you to have access to Him. Unrestricted, free, a privilege beyond words, the good portion, as Jesus calls it, which will not be taken away from you. 